September 1887. 23-year-old woman sits alone in her cell at the New York City Lunatic Asylum on Blackwell's Island. She stares blankly at the wall for hours. An orderly walks by while the patient mutters gibberish. Over the past few days, she's seen the other patients eat rotting meat, be forced to take freezing cold baths, and face physical and verbal abuse. She's scared for her life. That evening, she pleads with the doctor that she's sane and doesn't belong there. The more she tries to prove her sanity, the crazier they think she is. Except, she really is perfectly sane. She's faking it all. But they won't let her out. Hello, and welcome to Daring Descent, where we uplift stories of remarkable resistance throughout history. I'm your host on this journey today, historian and teacher Jeff DeMoss, and our episode today focuses on the amazing story of American journalist Nellie Bly. The girls got moxie. Never was a more appropriate time to use that old-timey slang than with her. She essentially events the practice of investigative journalism, she takes a trip around the world, and she does it all while being an all-around boss of a human being. Let's do it. Elizabeth Jane Cochran is born in May of 1864 in a town just outside of Pittsburgh called Cochran's Mills. Yeah, the town's named after her dad. Her dad had had 10 kids with his first wife, and she passes away, and he remarries, and with Elizabeth's mom, uh, has five kids, and Elizabeth the third. She's given the nickname Pink or Pinky by her mom, and they say that most women in her town would have worn kind of drab, plain colors at the time, and her mom encouraged her to stand out in these bright colors like pink. Her dad dies at the young age of, of six and leaves the family without a will, and so they don't inherit the land. She actually has a pretty well-to-do upbringing, and then things fall apart when her dad passes away. They move to Pittsburgh, and her mom is going to be struggling financially. Her mom, Mary Jane, is going to remarry into a marriage that is uh, abusive, one that is consistently violent, he's drunk, and winds up having to divorce him. And one of the first times that we see Elizabeth make her mark and stand up in, in this way that we're going to see her later on in life is she's going to testify as a teenager at the divorce proceedings. She says, quote, my stepfather has been generally drunk since he married my mother, and when drunk, he's very cross. He is cross sober too. You know, perhaps this leads her to view alternative paths to happiness other than marriage later in life. At 15, she's going to attend the Indiana Teachers College called the Indiana Normal School, and teaching was really one of the few careers that women could pursue during the time. She's going to add an E to the end of her last name at this time because she thought it was more sophisticated and fancy. And, you know, she doesn't last that long there because her family's struggling financially, so she has to, to drop out. While her brothers are going to be able to find paths to be able to become clerks and pharmacists, she's going to wind up running a, a boarding house, cleaning, taking care of children with her mother and her sisters. She doesn't exactly have a clear path in life at this point. In 1885, when Elizabeth is 20 years old, she's going to read an article in the Pittsburgh Dispatch, the most popular paper in town, where a man writes in under the pseudonym Anxious Father, asking popular columnist Erasmus Wilson, 
known better as the Quiet Observer, what to do with his five unmarried daughters aged 18 to 26. Erasmus doesn't really give an answer and instead writes a column titled, What Girls Are Good For? And this article is about how housewife was the only appropriate occupation for women. He says women should make the, quote, home a little paradise and play the part of angel. He calls working women a monstrosity. He criticized society for being so busy that they can't raise their children properly, and then joked that the U.S. should kill girl babies like China. He says, quote, there is no greater abnormality than a woman in breeches unless it is a man in petticoats. Oh, man. Tons of women wrote in, including Elizabeth. She knows tons of working women in Pittsburgh who need work to survive. So when Elizabeth writes in, she's going to trash this guy. And the managing editor who sees this letter from Elizabeth come in was so impressed by her writing that he put out a bulletin asking the girl who penned this letter. Elizabeth didn't actually sign her name. She signed it instead, Lonely Orphan Girl. And George Madden asks her to come in. He puts it out in this this bulletin in the newspaper. He writes to Wilson and says, Hey, she isn't much for style, but what she has to say, she says right out, regardless of paragraphs or punctuation. So Elizabeth shows up the next day super nervous. He asks her to write about the women's sphere, and she writes her first article in response to the anxious father. This is Elizabeth's first published article, and it's called The Girl Puzzle. It starts, What shall we do with our girls? Not our beauty or our heiress, but those without talent, without beauty, without money. So the premise of this article, she's going to respond directly to anxious father. What should we do with these women who are struggling to get married? So she makes some commentary about lower class single mothers. Can they that have full and plenty of this world's good realize what it is to be a poor working woman, abiding in one or two bare rooms without fire enough to keep warm? while her threadbare clothes refuse to protect her from the wind and cold, and denying herself necessary food that her little ones may not go hungry, fearing the landlord's frown and threat to cast her out and sell what little she has, begging for employment of any kind that she may earn enough to pay for the bare room she calls home, no one to speak kindly to or encourage her, nothing to make life worth living? If sin in the form of a man comes forward with a wily smile and says, Fear no more, your debt shall be paid. She cannot let her children freeze or starve, and so falls. Immediately we're seeing her at the first time that she's putting herself out there on the public stage. This young woman with no formal education beyond the, the basics is going to very eloquently enter into a very feminist argument. She says, how many wealthy and great men could be pointed out who started in the depths, but where are the many women? Let a youth start as errand boy, and he will work his way up until he's one of the firm. Girls are just as smart, a great deal quicker to learn. Why then can they not do the same? She ends this article with, Here would be a good field for believers in women's rights. Let them forego their lecturing and writing and go to work. More work and less talk. Take some girls that have the ability, procure them for their situations, start them on their way, and by so doing, accomplish more than by years of talking. The managing editor of the Pittsburgh Dispatch is going to hire her at $5 a week. He's so impressed by her writing. $5 a week is not much more than the factory girls that Bly would write about in her next series. She's going to take on in her first articles as she's entering in 
accidentally into the world of journalism. She's going to write about women's experiences with divorce in an article called Mad Marriages, and she calls for reform to state divorce laws in favor of women. She's going to go and write about the plight of local factory girls and the poor working conditions that they're living in. And after a few articles, her editor and the, the whole news team is going to come together and realize uh, maybe she can't be writing under the pseudonym Lonely Orphan Girl anymore. So they wind up picking a new nickname for her, and they decide on Nellie Bly. His name is taken and misspelled from a Stephen Foster tune called Nellie Bly, but with a Y. She spells hers with an I-E. Stephen Foster is the one who wrote Oh Susanna and Camp Town Races, and he's kind of a, a local Pittsburgh hero, and this song is a super racist minstrel song. So minstrel shows were slowly waning in popularity at the time, but they were still one of the most popular forms of entertainment for white people, especially up in the North. And most of what minstrel shows did is they created really racist caricatures of black people living on plantations or in the post-Civil War South. And it's where we get the practice of blackface in America. So I'm going to read for you just a couple lines from this song so you can understand what it is. I'm not going to put on the full super offensive plantation dialect that it's sung in, but I want you to hear some of where this this name comes from. So it's Nellie Bly, Nellie Bly, bring de broom along, we'll sweep the kitchen clean, my dear, and have a little song. Poke the wood, my lady love, and make the fire burn, and while I take the banjo down, just give me mush a turn. Hey, Nellie ho, Nellie listen love to me, I'll sing for you and play for you a dulcome melody super racist portrayal of this black servant woman who I guess is being romanticized for her her work that you're just calling her along. It's very confusing to me why Nellie Bly is this name that's viewed in this positive light that they give to this new reporter. Elizabeth, now Nellie, is beginning her career in the very early stages of the progressive era. There's lots of social activism and attempts to combat the societal ills of the U.S., and as Nellie writes a lot of her initial articles, she's doing stuff like, you know, going undercover as a factory worker to expose poor working conditions. And advertisers weren't happy with the controversy her articles were creating. So she was told to only write women's columns on gardening, society, the home, child rearing. So she became this popular columnist, but still only asked to write about these things. And she's going to grow sick of these assignments real fast and want more serious work. She convinces her editors to send her to Mexico as a special correspondent. And she spends six months there. She's going to write about corruption and poverty under Porfirio Diaz, who's the leader whose actions later helped spark the Mexican Revolution. And she runs into trouble with the Mexican government when she's down there and has to flee or face arrest. And so she comes back, and at the dispatch, she's sent back to the women's pages again. So she's going to leave the smaller Pittsburgh dispatch on for, for greener pastures. And when she leaves, she leaves a note that reads, I'm off for New York. Look out for me, Bly. And in 1887, she's going to move to New York City. She'll be unemployed for months, but she steps into the editing office of the New York World, owned and published by Joseph Pulitzer. And she's going to ask this newspaper that's very famous for its forays into yellow journalism for a job. 
first pitch to write for the New York World is to write about the immigrant experience in the U.S., and the editor turns her down and steers her towards a story on a local, what was called at the time, lunatic asylum. It's unclear exactly what his motivations were. Was this an impossible challenge for this new reporter, or did he see the potential for her to tackle this story with skill and creativity? So Bly is going to set out for the New York City Lunatic Asylum on Blackwell's Island as her target for her first story. She said, I was asked by the world if I could have myself committed to one of the asylums for the insane in New York, with a view to writing a plain and unvarnished narrative of the treatment of the patients therein. Her assignment was to write up things as you find them, good or bad, give praise and blame as you think best, and the truth all the time. So this is not just a regular reporter's task here. She's going to go undercover and pretend to be mentally unfit in order to get committed to this mental hospital. Quick note about language here. The, the language of the time to discuss mental health is radically different than it is today. For the most part, I'm going to stick to the language that they use at the time as she uses language like insane or crazy, talking about a lunatic asylum that she's going to. Just so you understand the language that was used at that time, we've got much more appropriate language for those that are suffering from mental health disorders, but they just didn't have the depth of knowledge that we have today. So what she does is she's going to prep by going to a cheap boarding house and getting a room, the Temporary Home for Females, number 84, 2nd Avenue, and she's going to start imitating and questioning the women who seemed insane to her there. She spends hours just staring at the wall saying nothing. She practices facial expressions and speaking styles to make her seem mentally unwell. And the boarding house matron calls the cops on her. A judge declares her insane after she claims to have amnesia. And they send her to the insane ward at Bellevue Hospital which is the city's biggest charitable hospital. And she'd made a big enough scene at her hearing that other newspapers took notice, and one was seeking answers on the, quote, mysterious waif with the wild, hunted look in her eyes. Days later, she's going to be transferred from the hospital and put on a crammed boat full of confused women on their way to Blackwell's Island, where the New York City Lunatic Asylum is. And an ambulance driver told her at some point in this process that it was an insane place where you'll never get out of. Bly said, As the wagon was rapidly driven through the beautiful lawns up to the asylum, my feelings of satisfaction at having attained the object of my work were greatly dampened by the look of distress on the faces of my companions. Poor women. They had no hopes of a speedy delivery. They were being driven to a prison through no fault of their own, in all probability for life. In comparison, how much easier it would be to walk to the gallows than to this tomb of living whores. So she goes there and she doesn't have a clear plan from her or her editors for how to get out once she's committed. Which, you know, would have been one of the things that I had pondered. But hey, she's all in. Uh, she was more worried about getting in and it turned out to be really freaking easy for her to get into this asylum, which is part of what terrifies her. So what's an interesting choice by her is that she actually stops acting mentally ill once she gets there, which no one seemed to question. And she said, the more sanely I talked and acted, the crazier I was thought to be. So she takes careful notes of her treatment and the other women. And you know there are 16 doctors there for 1,600 inmates. And here's some of the things that she notices while she's there. Coarse, massive orderlies who choked beat and harassed patients, mandatory cold baths, 
My teeth chattered and my limbs were goose-fleshed and blue with cold. Suddenly I got, one after the other, three buckets of water over my head. Ice-cold water, too, into my eyes, my ears, my nose, and my mouth. They're in these small, wet, rat-infested rooms. One night she has trouble sleeping, so a doctor forces her to take laudanum, which she tries to throw up as soon as the doctor leaves. And, you know, there's no actual psyche valves going on. She said, I always made a point of telling the doctors I was sane and asking to be released, but the more I endeavored to ensure them of my sanity, the more they doubted it. What are you doctors here for? I asked one, whose name I can't recall. To take care of the patients and test their sanity, he replied. Very well. There are 16 doctors on this island, and excepting two, I've never seen them pay any attention to the patients. How can a doctor judge a woman's sanity by merely bidding her good morning and refusing to hear her pleas for release? Even the sick ones know it is useless to say anything, for the answer will be that it is their imagination. Try every test on me, I've urged others, and tell me am I sane or insane? Try my pulse, my heart, my eyes. Ask me to stretch out my arm, to work my fingers, as Dr. Field did at Bellevue. And then tell me if I am sane. They would not heed me, for they thought I raved. One of the sadder things that Bly notices is that immigrant women faced this racist abuse and had zero accommodations for language barriers. And she said that some were clearly being labeled insane due in part to just not being able to understand questions or commands. Everybody there, including her, remember, she's, she's experiencing all this herself, right? So although she's not having every single piece of these abuses be directly experienced by her, most of the stuff she's going through at the time that she's there. She said, in giving this story, I expected to be contradicted by many who are exposed. I merely tell in common words without exaggeration of my life in a madhouse for 10 days. The eating was one of the most horrible things. She said there was rotting meat. It was just miserable food. She said, in our short walks, we passed the kitchen where food was prepared for the nurses and doctors. There we got glimpses of melons and grapes and all kinds of fruits, beautiful white bread and nice meats, and the hungry feeling would be increased tenfold. I spoke to some of the physicians, but it had no effect. The insane asylum on Blackwell's Island is a human rat trap. It is easy to get in, but once there, it is impossible to get out. Nellie kind of realizes this as she realizes that there's no budge to release her after she explains who she is. So after about 10 days, she says, hey, I'm Nellie Bly, I'm a reporter, this is the situation, and it's, it's not happening for her, they don't budge. Weirdly enough, on one of her final days, a reporter from a different paper is sent to investigate the mysterious woman whose insanity hearing had made news days before, and he recognizes Bly. They had passed each other on the beat, and she, she pleads with him not to blow his cover. He doesn't, and she stays for a few more days, and at that time, that's when she you know, blows her cover herself and explains who she is. Finally, after 10 days, a New York world lawyer is sent to go get her, and Bly said, I'd look forward so eagerly to leaving the horrible place, yet when my release came and I knew that God's sunlight was to be free for me again, there was a certain pain in leaving. For 10 days, I'd been one of them. Foolishly enough, it seemed intensely selfish to leave them to their sufferings. I felt a quixotic desire to help them by sympathy and presence, but only for a moment. The bars were down and freedom was sweeter to me than ever. It's a very cruel thing that she realizes that there's other women who have been in there saying that they're sane and they see her get out. It's amazing to me that she didn't exactly have an exit plan. I'm glad it worked once the, the lawyer shows up, but she pretty quickly, once she gets out, writes her first article, Behind Asylum Bars, and she becomes this overnight sensation. 
she's going to later compile this into her book 10 days in a madhouse and you know what she argues in these articles is that their treatment actually made them worse what accepting torture would produce insanity quicker than this treatment i would like the expert physicians who are condemning me for my action to take a perfectly sane and healthy woman shut her up and make her sit from 6 a.m till 8 p.m on straight back benches don't allow her to talk or move during these hours give her no reading let her know nothing of the world or its doings give her bad food and harsh treatment and see how long it will take to make her insane. Two months would make her a mental and physical wreck. So as her articles go viral, it has a real impact on the state of mental health institutions in New York City. Psychiatrists who diagnosed her offered apologies and excuses. The city aldermen dedicate an extra $1 million per year to the New York Department of Charities and Corrections, and they have a grand jury called in to investigate that Bly directly participates with and, and helps in. And, you know, one month after her articles, many things had improved. As she goes and tours through Blackwell's again, she sees better living conditions, better meals, translators are hired, the worst nurses and physicians were fired there, and new people brought in, and, you know, one of the impacts of this is that this is kind of the beginning of Bly pioneering this new style of investigative journalism. It's it's kind of fair to claim that she's the country's first investigative journalist, not just with this sensationalist undercover reporting. You know, yellow journalism is going on at this time where newspapers are trying to sensationalize everything and pull out all these different stunts. In fact, a lot of Nellie Bly haters called this stunt reporting, but this is really good journalistic work and it's it's really the birth of investigative journalism. And these articles aren't for show. They make real impacts and and bring about change. With her newfound fame, she's going to be able to branch out and write quite an amazing variety of different writing for the New York world at this time. Here's just a small sampling of some of the things that she wrote about in this moment. She wrote uh, an expose on the practice of baby buying. She went into some pretty deep work to expose corrupt lobbyists and politicians. She wrote an article that she learned how to ballet dance. She wrote about the mistreatment of female prisoners by guards. She became a chorus girl, also known as a stage Amazon. I don't know what that means. She writes about inadequate medical treatment for the poor. She learns how to fence. She exposes a swindle happening at a local laundromat. It's just all over the place. I'm really fascinated by the fact that as her career is really blooming here at this moment, that she can do both these fun pieces and do things that she's personally interested in while also really doing some hard-hitting reporting on some very serious topics. And she's doing this all at a time when women are certainly not the norm in the reporting world, and she's in a newsroom where she's pretty much the only woman. There's going to become this trend as she gains her fame of other newspapers trying to do this female stunt reporter type work, but she doesn't do just stunts. She's doing real hard-hitting journalism here in ways that are pretty impressively exposing some of the seedy underbelly of New York City and beyond at the moment. All right, so this is my favorite article of hers that is definitely not hard-hitting journalism. This is her going undercover at a matchmaking service, an industry finding women husbands, it's the same year that she goes undercover at the asylum, and she writes an article, December 1887, in the New York World, titled, Wanted a Few Husbands. It starts, 
This husband getting interested me. I did not want to marry, but I was as interested as a little boy with a dynamite cartridge. So she goes to this agency, she says. I told them I'd heard of the agency and was anxious to partake of the bliss of making fires and sewing on buttons. <laughs> I wanted to try through them to give some lonely man a chance to find his ideal. So the, the couple that run the agency tell her that they have 7,000 men in their books and a lot less women. And the women all come because they need a home or they're past their marrying age, which, by the way, Bly already is at this time, almost. They show her an album of men and she remarks, Oh, such a collection. The rogues gallery is hardly more varied or interesting. By the side of a clerical looking man with a quite hypocritical face came an ancient Santa Claus who looked as if, after all his years, he ought to know better. So the package they offer, which I'm super amused by, is to send out your description card and photo to the men you choose. You can pay five bucks, which entitles you to their full services until you become engaged. Sounds like a pretty good deal. Or you can pay $3 for three months. Is that is that route for the less or more confident love seekers? I'm a little bit confused as to what the lower paying option would would be for. But uh, I don't know, $5 until you become engaged. That's, that's pretty good. So you have to give references if you want to get matched with the VIP men, of course. And uh, here's what Bly had to put on her description card as she's actually going to go and act like she wants to be matched up with a man. Age? 18. She's 23. Weight? Varies. 120 pounds in seal skin. Height? 5 foot 5 inches, including French heels. Complexion? Brunette. Occupation? Killing time. Religion? Very liberal. Are you accomplished in vocal or instrumental music? Yes, in both. Between what ages must your correspondence be? 23 and 80 years. Gets matched up on her first date and meets the matchmaking agent who set it up and he preps her for meeting this man. So for the best I can understand is they're running this like house where they've got a bunch of rooms and men are there and women can come meet them. It is a matchmaking service. It's not as scandalous as your brain is making it out to be at the moment. And so she goes and she meets the matchmaking agent. He's going to set her up and the matchmaker says, all right, here's the deal with this guy. He is not a dude but he is a good man and would make a first-class husband. I clearly don't know what dude means in the context of this era. He is president of two mining companies and is very rich and aristocratic, so you'll have to be nice. Come now. So, she says, With eager expectancy, I followed on tiptoe and French heels to meet the paragon of perfection. I stopped at the door, took a long breath, and put to death an amused chuckle as the agent rapped gently with his knuckles. There was no response. But the agent went right in and I followed. He mumbled something meant for an introduction and a great long figure arose from the sofa at the end of the room. The door closed and I was left alone with him. After the guy introduces himself, he hands her a certificate proving that he owned two mining companies and continues his obnoxious introduction by talking about his dad. He was a very smart man and master of 30 different musical instruments. I am master of very nearly as many. I was a prodigy when a child. People used to come from miles around to see me. When I was eight years old, I could speak and write Latin. And when I was ten, I wrote Greek. At eighteen, I graduated from Princeton. Yes, I was always wonderfully smart. He says that on the side, he's a famous writer. Oh, how lovely to be a writer. I breathed rapturously, and I kicked the table to remind me that a story depended on my self-control. What do you write for, those horrid daily papers or the dear, delightful magazines? 
He blabs on about all the different publications he writes for. The minutes dragged into hours, and yet he talked. I quit listening to him at last and began to think of other things. When my thoughts returned to earth, he was still talking. I was weary and faint from the siege, so I suggested with quivering lips and a trembling voice that it was time for me to go home. Can't I see you again? Not so long as oatmeal is cheap, I began to mentally swear, then aloud. Well, I couldn't see you here again, and Aunt is so queer. He left me on the corner without lifting his hat, and so ended my first introduction to a would-be husband. She had told the agency and this man that she needed to keep her dalliances secret from her aunt. So she goes on dates with a handful of men, and she seems to be putting all these men on blast and using their real names or at least very detailed descriptions of them in the article. And she's just sharing all these details about their dates and these people's lives and their desires. And she says, uh, one of the funniest candidates was a man who evidently thought to get a housekeeper for nothing by marrying her. His first questions were, can you cook and sweep well? Can you make beds nicely? Are you a good washer and ironer? Will you make the fires and carry the coal? And is your health perfect? Answered in the affirmative, he said, if you can give me proof of all this, I will marry you. She finishes with, and that ended my experiences in a matrimonial agency. I am still in search of a husband, and Mr. Wellman has my $5. So many papers in this era of yellow journalism started hiring these so-called stunt girls as reporters. And so... Bly's popularity is waning at this point with so many competitors, and she decides she needs to create her biggest story yet. It's 1888 when she gets her most fantastical idea yet. It's going to take her a year to convince her editors to let her do this. What she wants to do is challenge the record of the fictional Phileas T. Fogg from Jules Verne's Around the World in 80 Days. And she has the goal of circumnavigating the globe in 75 days. What gave me the idea? It is sometimes difficult to tell exactly what gives birth to an idea. Ideas are the chief stock in trade of newspaper writers, and generally they are the scarcest stock in market, but they do come occasionally. She makes a pitch to her editors that she's going to make this trip by herself without a male chaperone. She said they told her initially, it's impossible for you to do it, was the terrible verdict. In the first place, you are a woman and would need a protector. And if it were possible for you to travel alone, you would need to carry so much baggage that it would detain you in making rapid changes. Besides, you speak nothing but English, so there's no use talking about it. No one but a man can do this. Her response was, Very well. Start the man, and I'll start the same day for some other newspaper and beat him. November 14, 1889, at the age of 25, Nellie Bly boards the Augusta Victoria in Hoboken, New Jersey, with two small bags to take off for her trip around the world. There's certainly lots of public concern for how a woman could possibly travel without dozens of big suitcases, and she proved him wrong. She said, It will be seen that if one is traveling simply for the sake of traveling and not for the purpose of impressing one's fellow passengers, the problem of baggage becomes a very simple one. She didn't pack a single spare dress, wearing only the garment she commissioned from a dressmaker made of a plain blue broadcloth and a quiet plaid camel's hair. She has 200 pounds in English gold, plus some American cash to see who would take it. In her carry-on, she jammed in two traveling cups, three veils, a pair of slippers, toilet articles, an inkstand, pens, pencils, paper, pins, needles, thread, a dressing gown, a tennis blazer, a small flask, a drinking cup, a few changes of underwear, handkerchiefs, 
and a jar of cold cream, the one luxury item she afforded herself. Many suggested that she bring a gun, but she decided against it. In a twist that Bly herself is not going to be made aware of until the end of her trip, Cosmopolitan magazine sends Elizabeth Bisland on a trip the other way around the world, crossing the U.S. first, then the Pacific, at the exact same time as Bly. When her editor asked Bisland to race, she said no because she had guests coming for dinner and nothing to wear on the journey. But the real reason she refused was that she had no desire to get the notoriety that she was sure would come with such a race, but her editor convinced her to go. For Bly, the start of her trip makes her super seasick, which isn't a great start for someone who's trying to travel around the world. She notes a combo she had with a fellow passenger. Do you get seasick? I was asked in an interested, friendly way. That was enough. I flew to the railing. Sick? I looked blindly down, caring little what the wild waves were saying, and gave vent to my feelings. Sleep makes her feel better. She, in fact, sleeps for so long the crew thought she died. So at different times on her journey, she's going to travel by boat, train, donkey, rickshaw, horse. First stop, London. As we glided over the beautifully paved streets, I thought with shame of the streets of New York. A British reporter asked, What do you think of the streets compared with those of New York? They're not bad, I replied patronizingly, determined in true American style not to hear one word against home. Then off to France, where on the way she's going to get a letter from Jules Verne himself, who's going to ask her to come dine with he and his wife. Bly starts the combo by telling Verne her whole plan. My line of travel is from New York to London, then Calais, Brindisi, Port Said, Ismailia, Suez, France to Italy to Egypt more places in Egypt, Aden, Colombo, Penang, Singapore, Hong Kong, Yokohama, San Francisco, New York City, Yemen to Sri Lanka to Malaysia to all those other places. Why do you not go to Bombay as my hero Phileas Fogg did? Because I'm more anxious to save time than a young widow. You may save a young widower before you return. <laughs> I smile with a superior knowledge as women, fancy free, always will at such insinuation. In fact, Bly does later have an Egyptian man who mistakenly believes she is an heiress proposed to her, and she's called upon by a sea captain who she describes as having a smooth, youthful face and a tall, shapely, slender body. But alas, love was not found on this journey. From France, she's off to Italy, then Egypt. In Port Said, she saw boat passengers use their canes and parasols to beat back beggars, and Bly refuses to take part and says, a stick beats more ugliness into a person than it ever beats out. She's on to Yemen, then Ceylon, and in Singapore, she's going to visit a Hindu temple where a priest tells her she can't go inside. Why? I demanded, curious to know why my sex in heathen land should exclude me from a temple, as in America it confines me to the side entrances of hotels and other strange and incommodious things. No, senora. No mutter. I'm not a mother! I cried so indignantly that my companions burst into laughter, which I joined after a while, but my denials had no effect on the priest. In reading her accounts, it's important to note that Bly jumps back and forth between embracing different cultures and expressing some ideas that are certainly insensitive by today's standards. 
but you know overall she does try to dispel myths about different cultures she encounters to the best of her ability. By 1880s standards, I'm actually pretty impressed with her cultural sensitivity overall reading her accounts. So what she's doing, she's sending back telegrams to the New York world with brief notes on her journey, but they run out of ways to stretch her reports over weeks and keep the buzz. So they do stuff like give geography lessons and all the places she's visiting, and then they offer a trip to Europe for whichever of the readers could guess the exact closest time to when Bly would return. And half a million people guessed. People were guessing all the way down to the second. Bly is so varied and complex in, in her writing styles, which I love. In Hong Kong, she says, The palatial white houses come halfway up the mountainside, beginning at the edge of the glassy bay. Every house we notice has a tennis court blasted out of the mountainside. They say that after night, the view from the peak is unsurpassed. One seems to be suspended between two heavens. In Hong Kong, she has a convo with a man in the office of the Oriental and Occidental Steamship Company. Lose it? I don't understand. What do you mean? I demanded, beginning to think he was mad. Aren't you having a race around the world? He asked as if he thought I was not Nellie Bly. Yes, quite right. I'm running a race with time. Time? I don't think that's her name. Her? Her? I repeated, thinking. Poor fellow, he's quite unbalanced. And wondering if I dared wink at the doctor to suggest to him the advisability of our making good our escape. Yes, the other woman. She's going to win. She left here three days ago. So it's not until she's in Hong Kong that Bly realizes that she's in a race with Bisland. And I think she's a little salty when she first finds out. She says, I'm not racing with anyone. I would not race. If someone else wants to do the trip in less time, that's their concern. If they take it upon themselves to race against me, it's their lookout that they succeed. I'm not racing. I promise to do the trip in 75 days, and I will do it. Although, had I been permitted to make the trip when I first proposed it over a year ago, I should then have done it in 60 days. So from here, she makes a quick detour to buy a monkey and then heads to Japan. She's caught in a terrible storm on the way there, which threatened to slow her pace, and she said, I'd rather go back to New York dead than not a winner. She visits a leper colony in China, and then she crosses the Pacific to San Fran and travels by one car private train back to New York City. She describes the trip across country as a maze of happy greetings, happy wishes, congratulating telegrams, fruit, flowers, loud cheers, wild hurrahs, rapid handshaking, and a beautiful car filled with fragrant flowers attached to a swift engine that was tearing like mad through flower-dotted valleys and over-snow-tipped mountains. She arrives in New York City, January 25th, 1890, says, The station was packed with thousands of people. The moment I landed on the platform, one yell went up from them, and the cannons at the battery in Fort Greene boomed out at the news of my arrival. I took off my cap and wanted to yell with the crowd, not because I'd gone around the world in 72 days, but because I was home again. So she finishes in 72 days, 6 hours, and 11 minutes, which is the fastest to date. She's only going to hold the record for a few months, but it's it's amazing. This is a time when women still are expected to leave the home with a male chaperone, and she travels on her own all the way around the world and breaks the record. Bisland finishes her journey four days later after a rough trip from England to New York City, and uh, Bisland, in fact, never speaks a word publicly about her trip after the first day she lands back in America. Nellie uh, is going to write Nellie Bly's book, Around the World, in 72 days, and she becomes the most famous woman in the world. She said, 
I always have a comfortable feeling that nothing is impossible if one applies a certain amount of energy in the right direction. When I want things done, which is always at the last moment, and I met with such an answer, it's too late. I hardly think it can be done. I simply say, nonsense. If you want to do it, you can do it. The question is, do you want to do it? A reporter told her what she did was quite remarkable, and she responded, Oh, I don't know. It's not so very much for a woman to do who has the pluck, energy, and independence which characterize many women in this day of push and get there. As her international celebrity grows, they publish a Round the World with Nellie Bly board game, which, by the way, you can see some pretty cool pictures of on our Instagram at Daring Descent. There's a Nellie Bly house coat that hits the shelves, and there's Nellie Bly songs sung in music halls. So the New York world is making bank off the publicity of the stunt, and Bly asks for a bonus, and they turn her down, so she resigns. But she's so super famous, and her celebrity grows, so they ask her to come back and keep writing. So here's a bit of a curveball. April 5th, 1895. Bly is going to secretly marry millionaire manufacturer Robert Seaman. She's 31 and he's 73. There is a scandalously short courtship with the millionaire, and he's in the glamorous industry of steel milk cans, stacking garbage cans, and boilers. But listen, she's not a housewife. She immediately helps run the company. I'm hesitant to frame this as an abandonment of the feminist narrative of her life. First off, she can marry whoever the heck she wants. And second off, she's going to enter into the world of business and continue to go on this path of making a name for herself. In March of 1904, he dies and she inherits and takes over the ironclad manufacturing company. She's going to patent several inventions related to milk cans and garbage cans. She's going to quit the New York world in 1896 and... You know, the, the company does wind up going under in 1911. She files for bankruptcy and goes back to reporting. But she had this moment in her life where she enters into the world of business and finds love and pursues something different in her life. Around this same time, the women's suffrage movement is really booming. Bly's going to report on the movement before her temporary retirement. And, you know, although she supported suffrage and was a feminist in many ways, she never directly identifies with the movement. Let's go to uh, one of my favorite articles that she wrote right before her brief retirement called Nellie Bly with the Female Suffragists. She's going to go to this Washington, D.C. convention with Susan B. Anthony, Carrie Chapman Cat at the helm. And uh, here's a few snippets from it. One speaker said, In Michigan, married women don't own their own clothes. They belong with everything else to the husband. If you live in Michigan and are going to part with your husband, try to get your good clothes out of the house first. If you don't, They'll help him get a new wife. Bly has this amazing ability when she reports on things to kind of jump all over the place and really paint this amazing picture of the room, focusing on really uh, interesting and at times amusing details of what's happened. She says, Stretch your imagination and picture a man introducing a speaker and then calling attention to the pin in his scarf and telling what kind and how many he had at home. You can't. Neither can I. That's why I prefer a women's convention. It's not so humdrum. It's spicy and unique, and heaven knows improved. For if there's anything stupid in this world, it is a political convention. I believe that's the only kind men have to themselves. So she has clear support for the movement, also lots of fashion analysis. In the evening, Miss Blackwell put on a red silk waist, and though it was worn with the same atrocious skirt, she was so improved that I did not recognize her. Or, as I looked at Mrs. Stenson, I mourned. She has an ideal face, clear-cut and poetic. 
She parts her hair and combs it smoothly back over her ears, which is a very becoming style for her. But oh, how she dresses. I fear she is daft on dress reform or some other abomination. She was decidedly wider at the waist than she was below it. <laughs> we did not need to be told that she was corsetless, and I fear petticoatless. Her suit was a mud-colored cloth, the waist being low-necked and double-breasted, and the short scant skirt hung every way but prettily. I never could see any reason for a woman to neglect her appearance merely because she is intellectually inclined. It certainly does not show any strength of mind. I take it rather as a weakness. And in working for a cause, I think it is wise to show the men that its influence does not make women any the less attractive. Although some of Bly's critiques are a little whack, the movement did wind up changing its image in the 1910s with big parades and high-society New York women changing the public image, fashion, of the movement, fashion among other things. And, you know, she's going to be made a century in the 1913 D.C. suffrage parade, the one that's organized by Alice Paul, and she reports on it for the New York Evening Herald. So she's going to take part in reporting on and helping amplify the image of the most important women's cause of the era. The last significant pieces of reporting that Bly does is as a war correspondent stationed in Austria during World War I, and she's the first female war correspondent in the United States. She's going to lend some truth to the realities for soldiers during a time of widespread censorship of the brutality of the war. Here's just a little snippet from her writing. A continuous straggling stream of sick and wounded soldiers was always coming toward us. Sometimes they saluted, more often they staggered unconsciously and forlornly on. Their sunken eyes fixed pathetically on the west, blind to their surroundings, their ears deaf to the near and ceaseless thundering of cannons, their nerves dead to the awful whizzing of the grenades as they whirled above our heads, so near yet never visible to the eye. When she heads back home to NYC, she gets her own column in the New York Journal in 1919, but just a few years later, on January 27, 1922, she's going to die of pneumonia in a New York hospital only at the age of 57. The Evening Journal the next day calls her the best reporter in America. So what is Bly's legacy? You know, her journalism made a direct impact. It's not just inventing the style of investigative journalism that she does. She made a real-world positive impact on the subjects that she covered at the time. The other piece is that she's an independent woman. She really does have this moxie that drives her in a significant way that's so inspiring to watch her just say, I'm going to make this happen and no one can tell me that I can't. Thank you so much for listening to Daring Descent today. I really have been overwhelmed at the show of support from all of you out there. If you love the show, go ahead and rate and subscribe or follow on whatever podcatcher you use. You can follow us at Daring Descent on Instagram. If you really love the show, there's a link in the episode notes to buy me a cup of coffee or help fund some new sound equipment for the studio. And let's not forget that ultimately history is a practice in empathy. Let's leave, as we always do, with the words of our subject for today, Nellie Bly. I said I could, and I would, and I did.